Lands with FreeBSD article, a how-to on FreeBSD 12 VNet jails with ZFS, the Package Source 2020 Quarter 4 release we discuss a little bit, the FreeBSD on Raspberry Pi, uh, Raspberry Pi, <laughs> Free, FreeBSD on Raspberry Pi with 4 gigabytes of RAM, HardenBSD December 2020 status report, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now episode OI386, recorded on the 13th of January 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com bsdnow to check out the online backups for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode. The year is still young, but we are both recording on fresh new hardware that we got and so let's see if this works <laughs> the same way that as you're used to. And of course, we start with headlines, as always, with routing and firewalling VLANs with FreeBSD. Yeah, uh, so this is another article over on my company's website, clarasystems.com, uh, written by our friend Tom Jones. Uh, so in this article, we're going to look at and integrate two different network isolation technologies, VLANs, which many people are familiar with, and then FreeBSD's VNet. Uh, which allows you to have multiple instances of the FreeBSD network stack isolated from each other. So you can now uh, do things like if you need to have two different machines on separate networks, but both have the same IP address. Normally, that's hard to do inside one machine. But with completely virtualized network stacks, it's something you can do. So basically going to show how you can apply these technologies together to do interesting things, including at the end, a link to um, an article by Olivier cochard levey from the BSD Router Project on how to extend this concept to run multiple separate firewalls for different departments or different customers using a single machine. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, so this has lots of great stuff on how to basically configure different routing setups using VNet jails and basically allow you to build a single router that can route for a bunch of different networks, even if they have conflicting address spaces. Oh yeah, that's useful. I can see some use cases. Yeah, like uh, you can think where you'd have uh, two different networks that are connected to the internet. Both of them use the same set of internal IP addresses. And so the addresses would conflict and you couldn't use you know, a single instance of something like PFSense to do the routing. But with uh, the VNet concept here, you could uh, run two different VNets and have them have the conflicting IP addresses and they won't touch each other. More importantly, you get a separate instance of the firewall, be that PF or IPFW, in each of the VNet jails. Mm -hmm. And it also means those separate instances of the firewall don't share any locks, so it can uh, also just be a way to get more performance. Oh, right, yeah. And that's nicely illustrated there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's examples in here of uh, using IPFW and PF but also just making it simple to see how you would set it all up uh, and make use of a bunch of these different technologies together to make whatever kind of network you need to make. Oh yeah, I see. And testing with uh, TCP dump to see if the packets arrive on the right side. Yeah, you want to see what they look like on the way in and on the way out and make sure that uh, you know your network 
device that you're building here is doing what you want it to do to the packets. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And I guess the example will help people to uh, build this uh, in their own networks. Yeah. Uh, so if you end up doing something interesting with this, do let us know. Uh, and like we said, there's a, a link at the bottom of the article on how to uh, apply these concepts in a much more advanced way to do something like a, a multi-tenant firewall. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, since we're on the subject of networking, we might as well uh, cover it a little bit more in our next article, how to set up FreeBSD 12, a VNet jail with ZFS. This is over at uh, Nixcraft, and it starts uh, with uh, the usual question, you know, how do I install, set up, and configure a FreeBSD 12 jail with VNet on ZFS? Uh, they start off with FreeBSD jail is nothing but operating system-level virtualization that allows partitioning a FreeBSD-based Unix server. Such systems have the root user and access rights, Jails can use network subsystem virtualization infrastructure or share an existing network. FreeBSD jails are a powerful way to increase security. Usually, you would create a jail per service, such as an Nginx or Apache web server, with PHP, Perl, Python, whatever you have, a WireGuard OpenVPN server, MariaDB, Postgres, or more. And so in this uh, tutorial, it's demonstrated how so uh, you basically start with setting up um, checking your freebsd version making sure that you have the latest patches installed would not hurt and so then you create a new zfs data set on your pool of course you should know what your pool name is so that you know uh, how to apply these uh, changes to yours so this one is called zroot of course because all the examples use that but nevertheless uh, you create a mount point then slash jails and then mount the full base jail that's pretty much straightforward for our jails and they provide the examples to follow along and the screen outputs to see what the jail list looks like then the second step is to configure the base freebsd12 jail so you export the BSD install dist site variable. So you can uh, use this when you next BSD install jail to your just created uh, ZFS mount point slash jail slash full base jail. And an, a familiar uh, dialog will pop up from the installer. This is the distribution selection screen. And this is exactly what you can select. You want the 32-bit compatibility libraries, not the debugging ones. We're not doing that here but 32 bits support is added here. Then you run FreeBSD update-b two times with first fetch install and then IDS to get the latest updates there as well. Okay, then step three is creating a new FreeBSD 12 jail from that base jail, since now you only got the, the sources for it. From this, you can then in uh, that step, create this full base jail for your new jail. And first you do this, of course, with a ZFS snapshot because it's quick and easy. And then you, after you've made the uh, snapshot, you just send it over to your own pool, to your own disk, to a new uh, file system or a new data set more like. And uh, this goes to slash jails demo jail. Yep, quick and easy using these functionalities from ZFS built in. And you can now easily create multiple jails in the same way for example, for mail, www, databases, and so on, just do another ZFS send from your full base jail and receive that in a new jail that you call it the way you like. 
and this way you have a quick way to create new jails from a known good uh, base version of FreeBSD. Then you do a bit of configuring in step four, the basic jail stuff, you know, copying the resolve conf over or making changes in there directly, adding a name server so that this machine knows its network and the machines in and around it. And then uh, you set the host name, of course, for each jail. So there's no clashes there and should also do uh, rc.conf settings for uh, default routers and the net mask and uh, your primary interface there so that it has a IP address that's only assigned to this jail. Of course, disabling uh, some network services that you probably don't need, send mail in, in there so that the jails don't fight over this one interface. And good to go. In step five, you uh, enter your jail.conf settings. That's all provided in the article. Uh, step six is um, tuning the FreeBSD 12 jail service. So you add a jail enable to your rc.conf and add a uh, devfs rule set and add these changes for the demo jail in this case to it as an example. All good to go. Then you can uh, run JLS after you started the jail service and the jails will appear with their IP addresses and then you can JX it in, exec into them or run certain services that you're now uh that you now can do because it now has a network yep and this is the manual way you don't need a jail manager necessarily just follow these instructions and you're good to go yep uh there was a comment at the bottom from uh, Bermudin, another person who writes a lot of articles like this uh mentioning that instead of using zfs send pipe zfs receive you could do zfs clone and it turns out there's actually pros and cons to both ways uh, when you do the send receive, the two copies become completely separated. Whereas when you do a clone, any blocks that are shared uh, stay shared, and that can work better in the case of, um, you know, if it's if they're both 12.2, then you just save uh, a whole bunch of space. But if you're going to end up with them being very different, uh, it can cause problems. Or while a clone exists, you can't delete the the origin, mm. the parent of the clone. Now you can use the um, promote? ZFS promote command to flip the parent-child relationship to make the clone, the origin, and the original origin be a clone of that, so that you can then delete the original one and keep the clone only or whatever. But by doing send receive, you end up with completely separate items or uh, data sets. So there's advantages to both. Uh, so neither one is right or wrong, but depending on your use case, you might want them to be completely decoupled or you might want them to be clones. The other nice thing is you can start as a clone and then use the send receive thing to unclone it later uh, if you do need to separate them. So clone is probably the better default, um, but both have advantages. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm sure somewhere else you can find some documentation. You can delegate, like uh, in this case, the, the subject of the article mentions ZFS and it's mostly just using ZFS to host the, the files. But you can also create an additional data set that you can jail, uh, basically delegate to the jail so that root in the jail can control that data set and create their own snapshots and create sub data sets and, and all that. So you can do really interesting stuff with uh, delegation of data sets as well as a way to build on the, what this tutorial covers. Mm -hmm. Yep, so there's uh, very much flexibility in there uh, and you should uh, try it out and see for yourself what use case you prefer cloning or sending. Okay, then it's time for the news roundup this week. 
we have the package source quarter four of 2020 release uh, over at uh, netbsd.org. And we got uh, from Greg, Greg Troxel. He writes that the package source developers are proud to announce the 69th quarterly release of package source, the cross platform packaging system. Package source is available, of course, with more than 24,000 packages running on 23 separate platforms. And of course, you can find more information on packagesource.org. Uh, so there's a special note for users of package source on NetBSD. The default package database location has changed from vardb pkg to user pkg pkg db. So that's a new location there. While there is compatibility code that will quietly use the old location, users are advised to explicitly set that database path whether or not they migrate the database especially if they have taken intermediate or partial migration steps. So that is going to be the new default. And in total, 212 packages were added, 20 packages removed, and 1,582 package updates. Wow, that's a lot. Some other interesting changes. Uh, the default version of Python was updated to 3.8, uh, which may cause you some problems, but they mentioned how to fix that, uh, including... They also mentioned some older platforms like CentOS, uh, where... Python 3.8 doesn't actually compile, still use Python 3.7 as the default. Uh, or you, sorry, you can set it in your mk.conf to go back, or if you need to, you know, uh, stay on 3.7 for a little while or whatever. Other big news, they added support for macOS on the M1, the 64-bit ARM CPUs. Many packages build and work, and very uh, likely many do not. <laughs> uh, the primary path to support for this newest our OS and CPU combination is via upstream releases, uh, and many upstreams have not yet created a new release that works. But as software gets updated to work on the M1, obviously, Package Source will grab those newer versions and things will work. They also note that Firefox and Thunderbird might be problematic if you are running NetBSD 8 or older systems um, because they don't have a new enough compiler to handle the latest versions of Firefox and so on. Uh, and of course, you know, you can solve this by using NetBSD 9 or a newer version of whatever operating system you're running. Mm -hmm. Okay. But yeah, package source is very interesting just because of how broad the support is. And yet they're still managing to do 20,000 packages. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, and a lot of people uh, working on making that happen. So thanks for that. Cool. Then next up, oh, another platform that could use package source is Raspberry Pi 4. And we have an article here to run this with a four gigabyte of memory get raspberry pi 4. yeah ah well you don't need package source uh for a raspberry pi FreeBSD ports work fine right on arm anyway they say uh so this is a story of how i managed to get FreeBSD running on a raspberry pi 4 with four gigabytes ram though i think the setup story is pretty similar if you have the version with two or eight gigs of ram i also managed to get rust built from source kind of which is nice because the default rust installer doesn't seem to work on FreeBSD on the Raspberry Pi just yet. Is there anything awry with these setups? Uh, feel free to reach out and let them know. So the first step was to install FreeBSD. So they got themselves a Raspberry Pi 4 and an SD card. Uh, and this is, they don't know how to boot uh, from a hard drive on the Raspberry Pi 4. If anyone figures that out, let them know. But they downloaded the FreeBSD image, uh, a snapshot of FreeBSD 13 for the ARM64 platform. Uh, specifically the version for the Raspberry Pi. They say they don't make a Raspberry Pi 4 specific snapshot, but they're just using the Raspberry Pi 3 one. Then they decompress it and DD it out to their SD card. When it boots up, you can check the sysctl hw for hardware.fizmem, uh, which will tell you how much physical memory you have. 
They say after upgrading the boot system, I saw four gigabytes of memory. Prior to this, it returned a much lower number. That might have been because the way Raspberry Pi type devices work is rather than having a subsystem like ACPI that the OS can ask, hey, what hardware is here? There's a description file called an FDT, flattened device tree, or DTS, I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff. Uh, and basically there's a profile that just says there's these devices and they're at these addresses and every Raspberry Pi is the same, as opposed to, you know, an x86 computer where, you know, who knows what you've plugged into what slot and every machine is different. Anyway, so they installed the SysUtils RPi firmware and the latest U-boot for RPi 4, and that worked pretty well. Then they copied the U-boot binary uh, over to the right spot and everything to be good. I said, uh, so then they shut down the Raspberry Pi, pull out the SD card and mount it into a machine that we have the U-boot binary on, open up the MS-DOS boot image and find the uboot.bin file inside of that, delete it and move in the new one. And now when it reboots, we can see we have all the RAM. Oh, good. And then they say they love Rust, uh, and but unfortunately FreeBSD on ARM is only tier three for Rust. So they had to build it themselves or pre-built packages and so on. Uh, so they note for prerequisites, you will need all four gigabytes of RAM. Mm -hmm. uh, tried to do this before getting all four gigabytes of RAM working and that caused a lot of failing. Uh, you also need Perl. I'm not sure that it matters what version. But Perl, Python, LLVM, Git, CMake, uh, libgit2, Ninja, and PackageConf. Uh, so you probably want to start by getting a copy of the ports tree and then build lang slash rust. Oh yeah, that should take a few hours. What? Uh, so then they notice uh, rust has a, as part of the work, you get a bootstrap binary called rustc that's basically a compiler that allows you to compile rust uh, along with the binaries for cargo, rustdoc, etc. Uh, and they managed to fiddle with those enough to get it all working. They have an update here saying they managed to compile a little Rust program that they've made, and uh, that includes using the Serde or Serde, whatever. No, uh, no, that's part of the standard library, apparently. Uh, I'm not sure how well the file system watcher works. Uh, I'll try that out sometime and see how it goes, but they've managed to add enough stuff to get it working. Cool. Very nice. And then we have found the HardenBSD December 2020 status report, which we want to read to you. Um, Sean Webb writes in this post that uh, he wishes us a happy new year. On this, the last day of 2020, I submit December's status report. So FreeBSD recently switched to its source or uses slash source repo from subversion to Git. The switch had a major impact on HardenBSD. This month was spent almost entirely on that impact. I had planned to work on cross-DSO CFI this month, but I wasn't able to find any time for that. I spent some time with my foundation administrative hat on. I sent emails to receive uh, to recent donors, asking them whether they wanted to be listed on the donors page. If you have donated and haven't received an email from me, please reach out. This month alone, the community blew through our 2020 donation goal we received around 13,000 US dollar in December 2020. Oh wow, that's a lot. Uh, we are immensely thankful for those who contribute. Monetary donations go straight to improving the project. And in January, we will purchase a new server to replace our existing self-hosted Git server. It has been an honor to serve you, the HardenBSD community in 2020. I'm grateful for the continued opportunity to serve in 2021. And their roadmap page hasn't been updated in three years now. In January, they will update that as well. And so 
that is also getting an update and if there's something interesting in there you will hear it as well okay now time for the beastie bits this week we have well it's been a while uh, but not too long yet christmas cards the unix way with pictures and trough that's a youtube video yeah so uh they're actually using trough to draw a christmas tree on their christmas card here uh, so trough is a, a kind of a postscript language and so they're basically writing code on how to draw the lines and the text that they want mm, yeah so it's it's very similar to writing a man page, uh, except for with more drawing. <laughs> <laughs> with more instructions, <laughs> how to position the cursor and paint. Okay, but it works. It's a Christmas tree, all right. Yeah, and you see, they, uh, you can watch as the Christmas tree takes shapes and gets ornaments on it and then gets colored and they uh, do a whole Christmas car. Oh, nice. Yep. So if you've ever wondered how that actually works uh, or, you know, how you could make a christmas card using four loops <laughs> then this is probably the video for you this is probably some assignment for students before christmas break in universities or something i can definitely see that <laughs> uh, okay then um, connecting to our earlier raspberry pi story you may want to update this one one day and then it's kind of getting hard because, wow, this upgrade takes a long time using the build world and build kernel. That is a long process. But there is an instruction in the FreeBSD forums how to speed that up significantly by using cross-compile. And the way to do this is demonstrated and even, well, uh, described and what commands you need to write there in the FAQ section of the FreeBSD forums. And with this, you are doing the compile on a faster machine, like a, well, 64-bit architecture on uh, AMD 64, and then DD the result back to your SD card, and then the Raspberry Pi is magically updated. And of course, you merge your config files afterwards, and then you have updated without having to spend the, those cycle on the Pi itself. Right. So in this case, they're using their Lenovo T530 laptop with four fast, you know, three gigahertz cores uh, to do the compiling and then sending it to the Raspberry Pi, which is slower. Uh, I do the same thing sometimes also not necessarily cross compiling but you know i have a 40 core server for work and i use it to compile and then send that to my laptop mm -hmm. instead of compiling on my laptop yep uh, but the cross compiling is a bit more difficult because you need to build arm code on x86 but luckily this is something that llvm is very good at and one of the reasons why uh, we use it so much in FreeBSD is that it makes it possible to build everything very nicely. Not that GCC doesn't support cross-compiling, but it's just very nice to be able to build all the different architectures from your one fast machine. Yep. And then the Raspberry is quicker back in service without spending too much time just compiling itself. Very good. So uh, check this out and the other how-tos from the forums uh, might also interest you. Uh, another approach to this is that you can also share the resulting objector and source over NFS. So when I do this across multiple machines, what I normally do is build it on the fast machine, then NFS mount the user source and user obj from the fast machine to the slow machine, then I can just do make install on the slow machine. Uh, and as long as the disk isn't too slow, that doesn't take very long. Mm. Are you using... If uh... the disk is slow, it takes a while. But... <laughs> right. Are you using a compiler cache? for that as well uh no because i only compiling it once on the one machine and then oh, right. just installing it on multiple machines Ah, right yeah so you wouldn't benefit from having multiple ones yeah okay 
good uh but if you were building stuff uh all the time or building slightly different versions all the time or like if if you have a ci system where you check out every new revision and build it uh you could save a lot of time by caching yes mm -hmm. yeah so you have now new projects by just listening to this one episode okay good oh speaking of projects here well since we both got new computers we might want to at one point restore our backups and our backups are stored on tarsnap and this is our sponsor this week and has been for a while and tarsnap is just awesome because we're resting very well at least i do knowing that my data is somewhere in the cloud but it's all encrypted and no one can read it and copy it somewhere and make funny stuff with it and the way they do that is they create a little key locally on your disk and then check out what kind of data you have that you want to back up then figure out, ah, there's a couple of duplicates there, there's some unique blocks in there, and I can compress those, and that's very good. And so at the end of this process, still happening on your local machine, they found, oh, this is much less stuff I need to back up than originally uh, what I had. And then this resulting data is encrypted with that key, and then that encrypted backup leaves your computer finally to be backed up in the cloud. In this case, it's Amazon's AWS. And all the people, aka only you who have the key can decrypt that backup. The rest is just seeing garbled data. They cannot make heads and tails of it. Tarsnap comes with low pricing. I uh, In January, I gave my account a $10 upgrade. So I'm set probably for the next year as well. So this is super cheap, especially if you have a lot of data that you're backing up. And so you're not uh, bankrupt completely by just making a couple of machines backing up regularly using a cron job. Yes, the other nice thing with Tarsnap is because it's pay as you go, you put the money in and then use it means that you never get a surprise bill because you know you can't use more money than you have already put into the system yeah and they give you uh, ample notice that um you might run low on the uh, storage but this is not or not not storage the the amount that you put in your account but it's not too difficult you can charge your account with paypal and other methods so that's quick and easy and also i did recently i was on a slow connection for some reason and i was downloading that stuff and it told me oh i'm uh, interrupting uh, the download i'm waiting 60 seconds for uh, the bandwidth to come back on and it did and there, wa there was no interruption during the data transfer and so tarsnap resumed where it left off and so you can also have this on an unstable link if you happen to be <laughs> on a not so ideal network Clients are available for Unixes, uh, the BSDs, of course, macOS, uh, the subsystem for Windows. And so no excuse anymore to not use backup and not make backups immediately. Check out Tarsnap. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be in the position Benedict was where your laptop unexpectedly will not stay powered on for more than a few minutes uh, and you need all your files. Uh, That's horrible. Luckily, he had Tarsnap and was able to restore the important files from backup while he struggled to recover some of the other files <laughs> a little bit at a time as the machine kept turning on. Yeah. Yeah. And so back up early, back up often, and you'll thank yourself later for doing that. Okay, now it's time for the feedback and questions part of this episode. And people keep sending us questions, of course. Uh, your address for that is feedback at bsdnow.tv and uh, anything you want to uh, always let us know or some questions you have, some problem you're always struggling with, anything we try to help you with, 
that is going in this segment. The first one this week is Robert with a ZFS question. And of course, we like those just like the others. And Robert writes, Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Thank you very much for your entertaining and informative podcast. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a very unusual question. It's about ZFS. Haha, <laughs> that's really unusual for this podcast. Um, specifically about new compression algorithm Z standard. Ah, yes. So A, on my backup server, all data sets are configured with A shift equal 12 on modern HDDs, compression gzip-9 and record size 1 meg. Okay, performance is bad, but the only thing I care on the backup server is to store maximum amount of data. Could you please tell me, does maximum level 19 of Z standard apply better compression? Uh, generally, the highest level of Z standard will give you more compression than gzip9. Maybe not that much more, though. Uh, importantly, depending on the data, it probably won't give you much more compression than Z standard 10 or 12. And Z standard 19 compresses at like 5 megabytes per second per core. And 10 does at like... 100 megabytes per second per core. So you might, one of the advantages of Z standard and having uh, in ZFS, there are 40 levels to pick from is being able to have a little bit more than I want it fast or I want it best, where you can get somewhere in the middle that's get me 95% of the available compression, but do it in a way that isn't super, super slow. So yeah, Z standard 19 will compress better, or at least as good as gzip9. It does require more memory to do that. Probably not that big of a deal, but there are many times where 19 is probably a little more than you actually want. Okay. Yeah, so play around with it a little bit to, to find the optimum. Yeah. Uh, that also ties into question B. So on his laptop and application server, he uses a shift equals 12 for the HDDs and 13 for the Samsung SSDs. Compression LZ4 and minimum record size of 16K or higher based on the type of data. Based on his understanding, LZ4 is good even for a laptop with weak CPUs because the bottleneck is usually storage and not the CPU. So uh, would you recommend replacing LZ4 by Z standard both on the laptop and the server? Maybe the higher level on the Xeon server and lower level on the Intel i3, uh, i5 laptop? So the biggest problem with having to use a shift 13 is it means the sector is eight megabytes or eight kilobytes with Z center or with all ZFS compression, the savings have to be at least an entire sector. Otherwise it might as well not compress it. So it will end up storing it uncompressed. So if you have a record size of 16 kilobytes and a sector size of eight kilobytes means if it doesn't compress by at least half, it won't be compressed at all. Which doesn't, you know, ZFS will still try to compress it and then see if it got 50% or not. But it means that likely you're not going to get very much compression because of your very small record size compared to your very large sector size. If your sector size is 12 of uh, 4K, then, you know, saving 4 out of 16 is usually not so hard. But trying to get, you know, every block to compress more than half seems unlikely. So especially in that case, if you have very small record size and a very large sector size, LZ4 is probably better just because you will, it's not going to compress very often. So either, either the data is going to be very compressible and it will get half and it'll be fine, or it won't be compressible at all. In the end, whether it compresses 49% or 41%, either way, you still use the whole disk sector, uh, a whole 8K. And so it's not actually, getting even better compression isn't going to do any good for you. Hmm. Yeah, so. Uh, and there's a little uh, left at the bottom. By the way, I use encryption and scheme 
checksums on both laptop server and backup server, but I don't think that changes anything. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Okay. So he thanks us again uh, for our excellent podcast. NJT, thumbs up for having Blade servers at home. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we do these uh, question and answer sections so people have something to admire. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Thank you, Robert, and happy compressing whatever level you end up with. And so next is Neb with a uh, question about our AMA episode. And that goes, uh, Neb, on the timestamp around 6030, we discuss who has the most power in their total hardware resources. Ah, yes, I remember. Uh, do a rack off. Install Dragonfly and see who wins. Would be fun to see that trending. <laughs> By the way, I really enjoyed this episode. Brave New Year from Norway. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, sadly, all my machines are busy and I don't actually have that much CPU horsepower. I mostly have storage, so I think JT would win. Yeah, and I would need to, you know, figure out the Dragonfly. But he would lose because of his electric bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a different story. <laughs> Well, well, it's uh, yeah, personal preference, I guess. So yeah, but I, I'm happy you enjoyed our little episode about all things, uh, your questions, our answers. Cool. And then we have Joe with a Puppet question. And Joe writes, hello, I was just wondering the reason behind using Puppet for your automation tasks instead of something like Ansible. Is there certain advantages to using Puppet to automate servers? Um. So when we started using Puppet, I don't think Ansible existed yet, or if it did, I had never heard of it. And it uh, was probably in so, its infancy. You know, yeah, like when we started, I think it was Puppet 0 0.18 or something, uh, whereas now we're using Puppet 6. something. Mm. So it's been a long time. Uh, we've considered switching other times, but my understanding is Ansible doesn't really do exactly the same thing, especially the way we use Puppet. Uh, one of the things Puppet does for us is Every 30 minutes, it checks the server against the manifest and figures out, has anything changed? Is anything not the way it's supposed to be? And then it will fix that and report it. In our let's like slightly bigger setup, that extra heavy weightness of Puppet is worth it. Like we have a, uh, all the stuff gets reported back to a central server where we can see graphs and we, and we extract a lot of information. It's not to say that Ansible can't do that. It's just, you know, we put all the investment into Puppet and it's not worth the effort to change to something especially since I don't know that it would do anything better than Puppet does. It just does it differently. Yeah, you're not missing anything that you definitely would have a reason for right. to switch. If, if I was starting from scratch, I would likely pick something else. Mm. Uh, although, you know, a lot of the pain Puppet has caused us is in the past now. Like they, they don't make the type of sweeping break everything changes anymore. Mm. Yeah, where you have to re uh, rewrite your automation scripts. But yeah, this could also happen. There's also a lot of changes in Ansible where you had to um, make changes to your playbooks or adjust them slightly uh, because new features are coming in. All the ones get deprecated or replaced by others. So there's always uh, movement in the ecosystem, uh, no matter what kind of automation uh, solution you provide or use. But it's definitely good to look around what also is uh, available. And if it solves your problems, then you could use either of those solutions. Nothing is kind of like, oh, one size fits all. Uh, yeah, and if you already went into this, the other episode, let us know which one so I can go back and listen to it. Okay, and thanks uh, for your time. I really enjoyed the show. Great, so thanks for that. And that pretty much wraps up this episode, if I'm not mistaken. Do check us out yep. on 
we are on Twitter. We are on Twitch. We are on pretty much uh, the usual suspects where we yeah, hang out. Uh, some more followers on Twitch might uh, help make it so that we can, you know, we're big enough that we get the uh, more recommendations or whatever, but that's not a big deal. But uh, yeah, importantly, keep sending us feedback. You know, email feedback at bsdnow.tv and let us know what's going on. Yeah, and so twitch.tv slash bsdnow or twitter.com slash bsdnow. These are your addresses. And you can catch us on our website, uh, the live ones when we record. And they're kept there for a week until the next one. And so in case you really want to see us and not just get right. the audio. If you happen to live in a time zone where it's not possible to watch us while we're live, you can watch us the next day. Mm -hmm. All right, then this is it. Thank you for listening and till next time.